Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Hey, welcome back to the Thin Green Line podcast. And before John does our introductions to our guest today, just wanted to remind everybody that coming up April 26th, there's going to be a Patreon event for the Thin Green Line and Warden's Watch podcast. So if you become a Patreon member, which is only $5 a month, you will be able to participate in the question and answer session with myself, host Wayne Saunders, and your other host, John Norris. Without further ado, though, John's going to be introducing our very special guest. I'm excited. This was a dynamic interview, and I'll turn it over to you, John. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thin Green Line podcast. And uh, before we dive in, we want to thank you guys all for really bumping up our numbers. A lot of new listeners, a lot of new viewers. And uh, without you guys out there, uh, we couldn't make this podcast happen. So kudos to you. When you get a second, if you could please jump on Apple and give a five-star rating to our podcast, it's really helping distribute it and get that thing green line conservation patriotic message out all over the country. And uh, it goes a long way. So thank you for that. So today we have a super cool special guest um, near and dear to us on many, many levels. I want to introduce Cody, the Spartan Stamen. Uh, MMA champion in the featherweight banterweight class and uh, getting ready for uh, an upcoming fight, hopefully the first part of May here. Um, Cody, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great, man. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you on here. And I, I know we got to talk about your fight history and, and how you got into the sport. You know, my partner uh, over there, Wayne Saunders, talking to us from New Hampshire, has some wrestling history as well. So that'll be a fun conversation. Um, but we also got the conservationist. We got the Second Amendment guy, the active shooter, uh, enjoying shooting sports, all those beautiful things that we all stand for on the, uh, the conservation front that we're uh, really going to dive into as well. So looking forward to an exciting one this morning. Yeah, you're talking about that. 
the, the two uh, two passions of my life. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's tackle them both. Um, <laughs> and just to start, man, take us back. How did this whole MMA thing start for you? You know, obviously you grew up back east. Um, it happened early. I know you have a heck of a wrestling history. We've, um, I, I want to give a shout out to your and my and Wayne's mutual friend, John Bartolo, because mm. it was really John Bartolo. I knew of your fight history a little bit and where you were going, but John's so active in the MMA community. Um, I didn't know you, you had that outdoor background. You know, I just didn't know that. I just knew you as a fighter as did Wayne. So when, thank you, John Bartolo for bringing us together on this thing and, and, and kind of bridging that gap, but it goes way back for you. And, um, how'd it start? You know, geez, uh, and I, I, I absolutely love John. John and I hang out uh, all the time. I actually got a gun of his. I got to get back. Um, <laughs> borrowing a gun. That's kind of unique. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've kept it a little longer than I should have. <laughs> yeah, well, you're still, you're still in Nevada, so you're still in true America like I am in Montana. We can do that in these American states. Is it like you know, that book I lent somebody, yeah, you know, like a couple of years ago? <laughs> Kind of like that. <laughs> Just waiting for him to back. Um, but yeah, I mean, fighting for me, geez, uh, you know, I'm just a tough Midwestern kid. My parents own a, a restoration company, both hardworking, good people. Um, you know, I've just kind of always been a, a person that I wasn't a big talker. I was more of a, you know, if there's an issue, I, I, I dealt with it in a different manner and <laughs> that way, um, you know, uh, it's just, I just kind of how I grew up. And then yeah, I started wrestling in, in seventh grade. Uh, you know, I absolutely fell in love with it. Honestly, before that, I thought I was going to play professional football. I was a, a really, really good football player, but turns out I'm five, six, it's, mm. I wasn't going to in the yeah. cards. So I, I got super passionate about, about wrestling. You know, I got, I got pretty good fast. I mean, wrestling is in super competitive in Michigan. There's a lot of really, really good wrestlers and I got in a few really good programs and, um, you know, wrestling is like one of those sports that it, it really changes you. I mean, I, I, I always said any kid, you know, a parent that's like, you know, what should my kid do? What should, you know, what sport should my kid play? What should my kid do kickboxing? Should he box? Should he do this? Should he do that? I'm like, your kid should wrestle. I'm like, because, the guys I know, um, guys that I wrestled with, guys that were, you know, elite competitors in wrestling, they're all successful people in life because wrestling teaches you the discipline and the work ethic and the mindset you have to have, you know, because wrestling is a, an, it's an individual sport. It's you against someone else. Right. You know, there's no, I, you know, you get on that mat and you get tossed around. I've been tossed around plenty. You know, I've gotten my butt kicked, you know, more times than I'd like to admit, um, and, and that, that does something to you. You know what I mean? Like it either absolutely it breaks you or it, just, it makes you tough. And, and wrestling is one of those sports that we need in America because, you know, there's a lot of really soft people out there that, that really can't handle losing, really can't handle, you know, the, the physical and mental aspects that life throws at them. And wrestling right. teaches you. So, I mean, wrestling was just like the solid, you know, the foundation of my MMA career, not just from a um, – like a technical standpoint, you know, obviously wrestling is, is, is very, very important as an athlete, as a fighter, but I mean, for my mind, you know what I mean? It, it really does make you uh, a different person. It makes you, a, it makes you a tough person. It makes you uh, react to life situations a lot better. And, you know, so that's honestly where it all started was, was wrestling in middle school, wrestling in high school, wrestling in, you know, freestyle tournaments. Um, 
it's and amazing. Then, you know, you, I, I, it's amazing you brought that up, Michigan. Cody. Because uh, I'll, I'll just give an example. I have a buddy who's a dairy farmer, and he was a wrestler in high school. Vision Quest Dairy Farm. I'm sure you've seen the movie. Yep, yep. And I that's have. inspiring. Wrestler, Vision Quest. This guy, he didn't get the family farm. He started by buying a farm, and now he has two farms. It just You set that mind tone of a wrestler to the point. My kid's playing hockey. That's a different mindset, but <laughs> it's still a tough one. I will give him that. <laughs> yeah. But that, that mindset of a wrestler, you're right. Your, your goal, you go out there, there's a goal, you achieve it, and some of the scrappiest wrestlers are in your weight class, man. That's just, it's dynamic uh, to watch uh, those weight classes and stuff like that. And and I one question, I'll, I'll tell you now so you have it with you when you go, because I, I still want you to go, as a wrestler, you never want to be on your back. As an MMA fighter, that's not a big deal. And that had to be a hard switch up here because it got grounded to you so much. <laughs> yeah. I, still don't, I still don't like being on my back. I mean, obviously, you, you train there. You, you have to get as comfortable as possible. But the thought of you being someone, you know, someone being on top of you and having the ability to punch you yeah. while you're on your back is feeling. I think there's a handful of people that are comfortable there. I mean, and I'm not one of them. I don't like I don't like being there. So, you know, if I go to my back, my main objective is to get to my feet because, you know, that's a puncher's chance. But it is definitely a weird transition. But oddly enough, being able to go to your back um, actually opens up a lot of opportunity, a lot more opportunities to wrestle. I know that the, you know, the wrestlers of, of my time are different than the wrestlers of today. You see the guys now, they, they do a lot more uh, uh, crazy stuff. And I think that MMA and jujitsu has kind of evolved wrestling. Yes. Uh, well, you see guys going to their back more, rolling through on, on different shots. Um, you see a lot of different stuff that you didn't see before. And I think that literally comes from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, guys that do jujitsu and wrestle. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of brought like this hybrid kind of wrestling into the picture. Yeah. You know, Cody, on that point, um, it's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, you end up on your back, you try to get off your back. And the last 10 years of my career, especially before we went into building that special ops team that, that you're familiar with now, um, we transitioned our defensive tactics program from the old FBI defensive tactics style to all Gracie stuff. It was all jujitsu. It was all escape and traps and get out because, you know, our guys, we, we, we never like to go on our back if it's, you know, a real fight, you know, and if it's going to go to deadly force, especially hopefully avoidable, but more and more fights were ending up on the ground. And now what, you know, and law enforcement in general across the country weren't training for it at that point. We were doing wrist takedowns and arm bars and all this stuff, control holds, you know, from standing more of a uh, standard martial arts or a karate standpoint. And then the fight ends up on the ground and then our guys were getting hurt, you know? So it was largely when MMA was really starting to blow up and that transition you're talking about was happening. And um, I'm grateful to the sport you're in and what's happened there because it's translated over into military and law enforcement groups to keep us alive and up against some really, really tough guys. So, um, and, and it definitely saved our bacon several times, especially the last five years of some crazy cartel ops. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see it happening in your sport. And we're, we're taking it to the next level and continuing to try to improve based on what we see you guys doing in the ring and what jiu-jitsu is evolving into every year. So it, it, it's, it's a neat comparison that's saving lives out there as well. Well, yeah. And then you add the fact that if you understand, you know, top control and you understand bottom control, most people don't. Right. Right you have that advantage in that ground situation, uh, which, I mean, whether you want to go there or not, I think 90% of, you know, altercations that happen outside of the cage at some point end up on the ground, you yep. know, and if you 
have the advantage there. I mean, you're a, you're a shark in the water and they're (laughs) right. The only way to look at it. No doubt. So your, your first cage fight, that had to be so different. Uh, you know, that had, does it still, you've got to remember that the first time. Yeah. I mean, so the, my first fight, uh, honestly, I didn't, I didn't know that much about the sport of MMA. I competed in wrestling. I competed in boxing. I've done a few kickboxing fights at that point, but once you put it all together, it really becomes very, very real. And lucky, you know, my first few fights didn't last long. So I was in, I was in and out of there. And I don't know if it's because I was, you know, like as soon as they said go, I was like an uncorked animal and just went after the guy. I didn't, I didn't really, uh, you know, understand the technique. I think it was more of like, uh, I was in a hurry to get out of there. You know, I was still (laughs) fighting like life or death situation. And that's actually a good thing to have in a fight because if you go out guns, guns blazing right off the, right off the bat, I mean, the other guy's probably not prepared for, for that level of commitment. Uh, uh, very at the very first jump and, and maybe that's something I need to go back to because it, it did work out really well in my uh, amateur fighting career. I had, uh, geez, I think my first 10 fights finished in under less than a minute. So, um, I started off, you know, pretty strong in MMA, but it is, it is a different feeling. You know, that I think the biggest thing is, is the, is the nerves and the pressure that comes with, um, the sport, you know, as you get better, as, as you get better on it. I mean, I'm sure you can, you can attest to this, John, it's, it's, uh, you know, you really have to be, you, you really have to start getting comfortable in those uncomfortable situations. You need to, you need to mentally prepare yourself for everything that could possibly happen. You know I mean? Cause everything happens so fast and those live combat in the, in the, you know, the realm of fighting things happen so fast. So, so your reactions need to be absolutely on point, which means your mind has to be completely calm, but you also have to be, you know, in kind of a, a do or die mindset, you know, and that's, that's something that I think most guys struggle with is the, is, is the, is the mindset aspect of, of, of combat. You know, it's like, you know, before you're getting into a combat situation and you have to steady yourself to the point where, you know, you can do the right things. And you see a lot of guys kind of get crippled by the pressure of it. Um, and, and that's, I think kind of a difference that, the difference between somebody who's really good in the gym or really good in training in comparison to someone who can really put it all together in the cage is you just got to have that strong mind and you got to be able to, uh, you got to be able to adapt. You know, if, if things don't go the way you thought they would, you know, you got to stay in the fight. You have to, you know what I mean? Find a different way to happen. And that's, that's really kind of what separates, you know, a, a good guy in combat and a bad guy in combat is the good guy in combat is always, you know, he always has his wits about him and he's always, you know, prepared for whatever's coming next. Yeah, no, brother, <clears throat> you're hitting it on the head in that. You know, what people don't realize is you just meant you're mentioning the mental aspect of the ability to think on your feet and have anticipated certain scenarios that when the lights are on, you're in the cage or we're on a mission or we're about to, you know, encounter and it's going to go Western or go loud, so to speak. Um, how do you react to that? You know, we can train great when it's not, you know, when there's no real threat there. Um, and on our team, we called it fill and flow. That was the mentality that we could have the best operational plan. We could be physically fit. We have all the gun skills. Our dogs are on point. The team's working great. Individually guys are good. Um, but if you're not adaptable, 
because it never, you know, it's always Murphy's law, right? Mm -hmm. That fighter doesn't do exactly what you anticipated him to do after watching his history or whatever. And, and you're right. Not everybody can do it. Wayne and I have seen that in our careers countless times. And, and, you know, and, and I think you have it even more intense when you get to your level of success um, and you get more, uh, you know, better fighters coming at you to try to take that title and, and you're going after all of that. And there's that pressure it's publicized. You got, you know, millions of viewers at times. If you can't get into your mental bubble, we call it that bubble on snipers, man, and just fill and flow, you know, calm and eye of the storm to, for a couple of, you know, cliche statements. Um, that's what makes fighters like you so successful. And exactly law enforcement and military, you know, sheepdog and warriors out there and not everybody can do it. Um, and, and people get hurt because sometimes they can't do it, but it's a, it's a very fine line. And the other thing kudos to what you're doing in the sport and what we've seen in our careers is the preparation. You know, you said it growing up, you came out as a kid that was going to go after something. And if you, you got to a wall and there was an app, you know, whether it was economical family problems, whatever school, it could be a number of issues, especially with everybody going through these losses and COVID don't give up, don't give up, get around the wall. Maybe you're not going to go through it. Maybe you don't have to use brute force, but just fill and flow adapt, you know, and never give up. And, not everyone's wired to do that, sadly, um, and, and there's failure because of that. So the message you're putting out there as a fighter where you came from, you know, motivates our youth out there that are having hard troubles, you know, especially through these crazy times. Um, law enforcement and military, you know, careers out there, first responders that, you know, the bashing we're all taking right now in the world. Um, but people are still stepping up to do the job. So the parallels are great and, uh, and kudos to what you're doing there. But mental toughness is where it all stands. I think it really starts there. It does. It absolutely does. And it honestly, like I think of like in your position now, and I have a, a lot of friends that are, are, are cops back home. And, and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, we talk about fighting, we talk about work and we talk about what they're going through. And it, it just seems like there's such a, a negative stance from a lot of people who maybe don't understand what's, what's going on. And with the law and everybody's kind of, you know, they have this this mindset like it's us against them, and I'm like, you do realize that these people are are just like you and I, you know. Right. They're trying to make a living, they're trying to make your life better. They're trying to protect you, and you know, to take, uh, you know, everybody talks about, you know, how it's it's so unfair to take uh, one rotten egg and 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 mix that in with the entire group, you know, and and say that the entire group is rotten, right? I mean, that's kind of like racism in a, in a whole. You know, you have one bad person and you think all people like that person are, are bad. I'm like, well, you're doing the exact same thing with, with law enforcement. You do understand that 99% of these guys are the best, uh, most outstanding, like family men. They're good people. Right. You know, they want to help. Um, it's their job to help and, and they do their job well. And you're, you're taking maybe somebody that, that did something wrong and, you, and you're, you're thinking that everyone's bad. And it just doesn't make sense to me, you know, the logic isn't there. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, you know, one fighter, let's say one fighter does something super poor outside of, they get a DUI and they crash their car and they do something or they, you know, some kind of domestic abuse. And then they, they kind of clump everyone. I, I, know, I know the feeling, you know, I tell someone, you're like, yeah, what do you do for a living? Like, I'm not a professional fighter. I'm like, yeah. Right. You're <laughs> really? in that typecast now, right? Really? Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a really nice guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> really i'm nice yeah <laughs> i'm bored you know i just i do this for a living it's my job like i, I you know it doesn't make me like a, a crazy insane person um 
So I kind of, I kind of, I, I know the feeling and it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's disappointing because, you know, I think if people, if more people knew what, what, what you do and what, um, a lot of law enforcement officers do on a, on a daily basis that, to, you know, keep people like me safe, I think they would have a better understanding the same way if more people understood like what it takes to be an athlete and what it takes to be a fighter and compete at this level. Uh, you know, the things that we go through are, are, they're hard, you know, they're really, really hard. And it's very, it's, everything is, it's on the table. You know what I mean? If you make a mistake right. in the news, if I make a mistake, my mom has to watch me get my butt kicked, you know? So (laughs) you're in a very vulnerable situation where, uh, you know, it's very, very unforgiving and people don't tend to remember, you know, all the good things. It's the one slip up that you had that, or one slip up that a law enforcement officer has that, that everyone like kind of attaches to, even though, you know, you have one mistake and then you have, uh, you know, a million things that are done right everyone, they cling on to that and they, they kind of judge the whole, you know, based on one person's mistake. And it's just not, uh, it's not fair. And it's just not, uh, it's not the way it should be. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that role model status you're put into automatically. You know, yep. you as a professional fighter, you're in that limelight where, you know, an NFL player, you mentioned your history with, with football. And when one NFL guy does something that goes dark and it blows up, you know, the NFL takes a hit and, you know, these guys are, you know, overly paid and, you know, they're, they're bad behavior and all this. And think how many athletes at the level that you're training at are there with exemplary character records, you know, they wouldn't be where they're at if they didn't have great character and really believe in their community and what you give back as a role model and what NFL athletes give back to their communities with their foundations and everything else. And it taints that. And I I appreciate you saying that, mentioning it on the law enforcement side, because we've been taking an absolute battering you know we've been taking our own beating in the ring the last couple of years um but we we try to do the best we can so uh we appreciate your sentiment on that but again we're all in that light you especially now as your career continues to blossom and it's good that you're putting out a great message not only from a just general character standpoint of what you represent for mma uh, as a professional fighter but also as as just a role model out there for for our youth and adults but the conservation side of stuff that's coming out that's so critical that we all value so much. And I know, uh, you know, Wayne and I talk a lot about that on both Warden's Watch and this show, that that is a, that's a, a market that's getting smaller and smaller. Um, you know, it's getting more and more threatened. You, you, you know, as well as anybody, you know, better than anybody, the threats to our wildlife species out there with everything from cartel threats and poaching and, you know, development and just abuses. So you bring another element to fighting that most fighters don't that we, at least that we publicly know of is that support of the conservation world out there. And, and we appreciate that. And we got to, man, we, we got to hear about that Wayne a little bit on Cody's background. Yeah. We definitely got to hear your outdoor side. Cause I think that's what connects us all. I mean, certainly I, I love the fighting stuff too. <laughs> I, you know, uh, being that individual, the, getting out into the outdoors, I'm sure that has helped you as well. Seeing that goal and achieving it as a young man and just to experience the outdoors. It's just uh, it's an awesome thing that I think we all share. And we'd love to hear how you started and uh, how you're continuing on. Geez, I mean, my dad is a pretty consummate outdoorsman. And he's my dad's a uh, he's like, I want to say he's like 30, 40 percent Native American. So like conservation was kind of uh something that i was taught from a super young age like you take care of the land like i mean if you threw a piece of trash on the ground when i was a kid like you're getting you're getting your butt kicked because it wasn't 
you know what I mean? Like, it was like, Hey, this is like, you respect this. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is the earth. You don't mess with it. I mean, it was very from like a, from like a native American standpoint. Um, that's kind of where I kind of learned, uh, you know, my, like to be a, a, a person of nature, you know what I mean? To, to, to really respect the land that, you know, gives us everything that we need. And, uh, I see that, I see that, uh, that salmon you got on the, on the wall there. Yeah. It's a, maybe it's, maybe it's Lake Charles, but I can't, it's a I can't salmon. Really tell. You got it. <laughs> yeah. yep. that, was, that was one of like my, I mean, I, I deer hunted, I duck hunted and I got into salmon fishing and I absolutely just fell in love with it. Uh, uh it's a, it, you know, obviously Lake Michigan, there's, uh, there's, you know, freshwater salmon and steelhead that run up the, up the stream. And that was like kind of one of my like first loves. And that was like one of the things I, I kind of discovered when I first, you know, started doing MMA. And that was like my, uh, that was just what I, that was what I did. You know, I, that's, it was easy. I could just go to the river. I could go fishing before, after practice, uh, after work, after school, whatever it was. Um, and that was really kind of where I like really fell in love with the outdoors. I mean, I'd always, I'd always been, you know, I deer hunted and I duck hunted my entire life. And then I started doing that and I realized that there's like, there's like calmness about mm. it, you know, and that's, that's kind of what I fell in love with. It wasn't really about catching fish. It was just about being in nature and, you know, enjoying it. And, and like, I'd go out there and <clears throat> I can remember, you know, I'd, I'd see people, you know, dump trash or something somewhere like the, where I was fishing. And it just, it just irked me the wrong way. I did. I would, I couldn't not say something. I'd be like, hey, man, Yes. Please, pick that up. <laughs> please pick that up. You know, like it's a beautiful place. You know what I mean? Beautiful spot in the river. Just, you know, please pick that up. You know, and if they didn't, I'd pick it up for them and I'd, you know, have a, I'd have a, a, word, a word with them. Like, Hey, I'd, I'd rather never see you here again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, and that's kind of like, it's, it's blossomed into something more, you know, it's really like the, the one thing I, I, like I said, I thoroughly enjoy doing outside of, outside of 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 mma and now it's it's kind of fallen into uh, now i'm a huge i'm a huge duck hunter uh I, I love duck hunting and i found some amazing spots um in nevada where you know i'm living right now and uh same thing you know i've, I've got it i got to know all the conservation officers and the, and the game wardens and i've actually uh there was a there was an instance this year where there were some guys that were uh, kayaking around this lake I was hunting at and they were uh, shooting, shooting from their kayaks. Oh. <laughs> and well, and actually it, it, shooting from your kayak isn't illegal uh, in Nevada, which I don't understand how that's not, but it was actually like animal harassment. They, they did it for a, a really long time to the point where I was like, you know, I'm done hunting. This guy's kind of ruining it for me. Mm-hmm. So I left and, and, uh, conservation officer was was driving by and I, I flagged him down and I said hey you know I don't I don't know if if this is right wrong I don't know what these guys are you know they've been you know cruising around on their kayak shooting at shooting at ducks and you know the ducks are you know th- there's essentially this is this is a big uh um it's a it's a protected it's a protected area but there's spots where you can hunt but there's spots where you know this is kind of like the resting place for for that for the animal and uh and these guys were hunting in those areas and I, and, you know, I let them know and kind of went on a little, little ops mission and I showed him kind of where, where I was and, and, and where I was hunting. And he followed me back there cause the, the trails are really, really thick yep. and, you know, he got eyes on these guys and figured out who they were and ended up, you know, writing them all tickets. Hopefully, you know, I'll never see those guys out there again, but it was just, it was cool because, you know, I got to be a part of, you know, somebody, uh, 
you know, getting caught doing something that, you know, they shouldn't have been doing. And, uh, you know, I helped it. And, and it's like, uh, I, I love uh, Ducks Unlimited because, you know, they, they protect so much, you know, wetland and, um, you know, really like their conservation efforts are like in, in far as like the hunting world, I think they conserve more land maybe than anyone. Mm-hmm. And they're really, no doubt. It's well important. And, and remember that from your, from your book, you're talking about like, uh, the pipelines and stuff that people used to grow marijuana and how like they did it during the drought in California. And I never thought about that, you know, before, you know, seeing the book, I never really thought about like the effects that it would have on the environment and how, you know what I mean? How much they, you know, kind of take away from, uh, you know, like, like people don't understand that, like this, they're like, Oh, well this, yeah, this is happening. But you know, how does that affect me? Like that doesn't, that doesn't affect like, well, you do understand that, you know, these people are essentially stealing the water that you need during a drought (laughs) to grow public grounds. Like this is like, this should concern you. I mean, you should, you should make a, you should have a stance on this and uh, it's cool because it, it sheds light on, on, a, on a way that, you know, people, it can, you can relate it to yourself. You know what I mean? Like it actually, you know, cause obviously there's a, I mean, whether you're pro marijuana, negative marijuana, I mean, that doesn't matter, but you know, when it's, when you start talking about the environment and the effects that it has on the environment, well, you should be pro the environment. You know, if you're not, I'm not really, you know, what kind of person you are, but uh it's, it was cool because that was uh, that was something I really never never thought about, and I was like, you know, I really should care more about this stuff because that that is super important. Yeah, I appreciate you diving into the book, man. Um, and I, I figured, you know, you would resonate with that whole message, being the conservationist that you are. And it's interesting you mentioned the water aspect of it, Cody, because Wayne and I talk about this all the time. As game wardens in all our career, we were constantly dealing with water issues. Someone diverts a stream. It pollutes a stream, development puts sedimentation, say, into a creek, it kills fish, waterfowl habitats affected, all of that. Um, But until we started doing that cartel trespass marijuana stuff, we had no idea how much water was really being stolen. And uh, when we did some studies in the middle of that peak drought, like I talk about in the book, um, like 1.3 billion gallons of forest water was taken in one year period between like 2014 and 2015. And that's in California's worst drought. And you know, from being a neighboring state living in Nevada now, how precious water is in like Nevada in the desert. And we do a lot of work with the Nevada guys. Um, It was mind blowing, man. And not only from wildlife, but drinking water sources, uh, drought issues, how that affects, you know, a waterfowl flyway and, and migratory and nesting the following year and big game, you're a big game hunter. So, um, eye-opening to us. And then when we get guys like you that are in a professional sport, you know, especially in MMA where, you know, I, I tend to find people that are sports fans, rather they're professional athletes in whatever discipline. Um, you know, I off-road desert race, part of the Monster Energy Can-Am team now for the UTV side. And you guys in athletic sports, you know, basically football, baseball, MMA, professional fighting, um, you know, the off-road racing community at the highest level. Um, you know, some rock and roll bands, guys you would never realize are they're big time, you know, multi-platinum successful rock and roll band tour, tour artists, but they love their wildlife. They have hunting leases, they're protecting water and they, they're seeing the same thing you are. They're turning in poachers, you know, that are, you know, taking too many deer or sluice and ducks or whatever the case may be. And it's really cool when someone with your reach in the, in the fighting community can, can understand that message and, and be passionate about it and help put that out there. 
So we look at the whole thin green line as Man, people don't understand, you know, people really don't know. And I think that's the, the biggest issue is that people don't know what's going on and they don't understand how vital water is to every, you know, every aspect of wildlife in our, and not only that, but in our homes every day, you know, and if, like, if we don't protect our, our water lands, essentially, like we're losing, not only are we losing all of our, our animals, but we're losing our most valuable resources as humans. You know, there's actually a really cool uh, documentary on Netflix that kind of talks about it and talks about really how, how bad it is. And it was cool because it kind of it shed some light on, you know, people to see water as like this resource that is just like of overabundance and like, we're never going to run out of it. And it's, it's, you know, you turn on your faucet and water runs and no one's worried about it, but it's like, what does that look like for our kids? What does that look like, you know, in the future? You know, what is it, what is the, what are all these, you know, between pollution, between poaching, between, you know, cartel stealing water, you know, all these things, like, what does that look like for us? You know, are we going to be able in 10 years to, to turn on our, our faucet and, you know, fresh water is going to come out? Like, I really don't. I really don't. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, yeah. I don't know what the climate is now. Um, you know, if, if, if we're being honest and if, you know, you obviously know a million things more than I do. But if, if I'm looking at it from, you know, just from the knowledge that I have, uh, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. And I think not enough people are talking about it. Not enough people kind of understand that, you know, like there's this negative bias on the, on the hunting community, you know, cause I think a lot of people are kind of still against hunting, but, but they eat cheeseburgers. I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I don't, I'm not really for hunting, but you know, I do love going to Burger King and getting a, a <laughs> cheeseburger. I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm not really sure how I can explain this to you, but you do understand that that was a, that was an animal, right? That yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, killed, wasn't killed in a humane way in its own like environment. You know, I don't think people understand how hunting is and, and the relationship you should have with your food. Uh, yeah, and it's, explain that to the normal person, but I think that the basis of everything should be the conservation. We should mm -hmm. be talking about that more. You and know, hunters put their money where their mouth is, Cody. Your license dollars goes into conservation, where 95% of the conservation comes from hunters, anglers, uh, even outdoor people enjoy the outdoor, don't contribute to it. Uh, and they, they yep. everybody that wants to stop hunting wants to stop conservation, if you ask me. If you're against hunting, you're against conservation because that's the way the money. If you're against fishing, guess what? And, and that's the next. Once we get rid of hunting, we're on to fishing. So, but I do want to go back, and I really appreciate the story about giving that information to the game warden because that's so precious to us wardens uh, as people yeah. getting involved and giving us good information. And I just want to make a, a good comment that that warden was a good warden because he had to bring them back to that spot so he could acclimate himself because everybody thinks we know everything. And when I was a young warden, I knew everything too. So I, I said, yep, yep, I know right where that is, right where that is. I spent days looking for the spots they would tell me about. So I would always grab them and say, hey, let's go back. Let's go back. And I tried to instill that into as I trained wardens. Yep, you want to act the cool warden. You want to know everything. Have them bring you back to the spot. Because it'll take you days to find where they're talking about it, and the, the, it'll be done. So that's a great thing that yeah. you reported, and then they took action, and we encourage so many people to do that, and that's just outstanding. More people like you, less poachers. So more people yep. doing the thing right. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, 
you gotta understand people people keep their uh their honey spots a secret mm. <laughs> you know? oh yeah they're good yeah. you know, you know, the spot that i the spot that i found i had it i had it mapped out and it was like a probably a mile hike in yeah uh, there's some really 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 thick brush mm. and like i was confident that no one no one was gonna find the spot you know unless especially because you know duck hunting you're doing it in the dark you're doing it i'm going yeah. out there yeah four, for hours yep <laughs> i don't have things if i don't know exactly where i'm gonna turn left and right the brush is you know 10 feet tall uh i'm just gonna end up standing in the brush until it gets light out and I, <laughs> yeah and i actually uh i actually uh i've not like I'd, I'd never seen anyone get there and like when when me and the uh, conservation officer got there. He was like, "Wow, this this was quite a hike. I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad you. Oh, there's no way I would have found it." And I was like, "Honestly, I got lost this morning. <laughs> I I went left instead of right, and I ended up standing in a, in a in a bunch of brush for 30 minutes trying to find my way out of it. And I had a, it was a it was a tough spot to get to. Um, there's nothing worse than being lost in the dark with you know 80 pounds of stuff on your back either." No doubt. Yeah, you know, you know, Cody, on, on that point, um, and Wayne, you, you said it best. We make our best cases in those most remote areas where the poaching is going on so far in the most remote wilderness that so few guys are getting to. Um, we wouldn't find them without you, you yeah. know? Yeah. And when we get really hardcore guys that know what they're doing out there, like yourself going out, you know, doing two hours of hiking with a headlamp to get to your duck spot. I do the same thing for whitetail here. I got a hike in snow at you know, four or five in the morning, then get to the stand, set up all my stuff. And in the rare instance that you find someone else in your area, if they're cool and ethical, it's great. But nine times out of 10, we find a problem, you know? Mm. So we find them with guys like you and you guys become, you, you guys are that extension of the thin green line or eyes and ears through the kind of turn in a poacher program that every state has that we just couldn't make those cases. You know, you know how thin we are as far as numbers. I'm sure you know from the Nevada guys, there's, we've trained with the Nevada and there's like 45 game wardens in all of Nevada. And that state, as you know, but a lot of our listeners and viewers don't, I mean, the elk, the mule deer, the predators, the waterfowl, Nevada has a diversity of wildlife species spread out in this massive, you know, acreage of uh, miles and miles of track. It's huge. Um, And those guys, you know, they, we just can't, we can't find those guys taking the water, making those poaching problems without you being out there. So it's, uh, it's really cool that you're doing that. And then, you know, we're trying to promote as many people to be our eyes and ears out there, but that's a great story that you go out in your remote area and find and run into a problem. And what a heartbreaker, right. To finally find a poacher out in those areas. It just pisses you off. And it's like, okay, now I'm going to fight back and we're going to clean it up. It does because, you know, I don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a busy guy, you know, my right. Train- life i don't get that many opportunities to go out and enjoy the wildlife i mean i wish i could do it more but you know obviously you know fighting has to take a a, a precedence to everything else i do sure and when you go out there and then you got to deal with that i'm like you know this is my day off like yeah, come on. yeah. like exactly like you said I, at that point i'm just pissed i'm like i you know i don't want this to happen again i want this i want this person to get caught and uh you know like it it's, it's kind of the same story in Michigan. You know, I, I like where I hunted and fished in Michigan. I'd never, I'd never seen uh, a conservation. I'd never seen a conservation officer. I'd never been stopped and asked for my license. And uh, that fishing spot that I was talking about earlier, uh, there were guys snagging fish down there, you know, cause the, the, the steelhead kind of get bottled up in the river. Right. And 
if you if you're snagging fish i mean there's a there's an a there's an abundance of fish if, if you're snagging fish whatever if you're doing it to feed your family or whatever you're doing it that's fine the problem is like you know those guys have those big treble hooks and force you know the gray fly <laughs> we call it force yeah, of the gray fly because it's a leaded treble hook and they just rip it through the salmon so but we're, yeah, we're always yeah. looking for that yeah, they kill it. I mean, yeah, they kill as many fish as they catch. More. And then, you know, after line, there's a huge treble hook in the water. And then, you know, that's kind of like a, that's a, that's a hazard for fish. That's, you know, that's just a, it's a bad thing. So actually, uh, to that point, I, uh, called a conservation officer and actually busted some guys, um, that were in my favorite fishing spot. With nice. and, uh, yeah, they were, I, I went to the I went to the spot, and these guys had already been there. They were there all night. They had a pile of fish on the bank, and um, you know there was a bunch of. I mean, I was I ended up fishing, you know, thirty yards down from them, and I could see like line in the water where they had ripped their stuff off, and that was kind of like the breaking point. I'm like, all right, I'm turning these guys in. Like, you know, not only are they, you know, obviously killing more fish than they need to, like, and they're, you know, they got, you know, these massive treble hooks in the water. Mm-hmm. So that was my that was my first time, you know, dealing with that. Um, and you know, it's actually like a, it's like a, it's like a proud moment. Cause if you're, if you're, if you're a real outdoorsman and you're, you're out there doing it right and you beat me to a spot, like good for you, you know, bummer, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm mad. I'm mad yeah. because, you know, there's I, some respect there. You know, he, he did his I, homework or she did her homework. Uh, yeah. Good for you, dude. Dang it. Um, but <laughs> if you're not right, like I definitely, I definitely want to see, uh, I definitely want to see you out of my spot hopefully for good. So that's a, that's a, it's interesting that you guys say that because, you know, I, I've, I've always kind of felt like, uh, you know, I was just like, I was just bitter and I was kind of telling on people, but, um, I never really looked at it. Like I was, you know, kind of doing my part to help, uh, kind of just looked at it like I was being selfish and I wanted these guys out of my spot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it is true. I mean, God, you know, you talk about 45 conservation officers in all of Nevada, like that is such a wild wild number to me because nevada is huge you know, right Nevada, enormous it is a is a it's a giant state it's it's vast and there's so many like like you said so many different types of wildlife and the fact there's only 45 conservation officers like it's got to be almost impossible for them to really really catch anybody and then you know by the time they get the information that they need it's like yeah i was on this mountain and i you know saw these guys doing something illegal so like, by the time they get there, the chances of those people still being there aren't great. So, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess hunters could uh, really, really help, you know, and if, if you're doing it right, you have nothing to, uh, nothing to worry about. So you should want to call your local conservation officer game warden to come uh, fix a problem. Yeah. And we're uh yeah, brother, we're starting to see more and more people step up like that. Um, even if they're not necessarily hunters, because through COVID we saw, all of us on enforcement completely tied up other places, whether it was public safety, hospital issues, you know, we had protocol where we couldn't be out there. So like our met team and Wayne's wardens over uh, his old colleagues in New Hampshire and us, we had all this lockup protocol. We just weren't out checking people. So the cartels went rampant with cannabis and meth and poisoning waterways and poachers just went crazy up here in the national forest of Montana, Northern California, where I'm previously from. It was mind blowing to hear the stories. And it was people that had to get to the outdoors that were just such diehards, either hikers, backpackers, guys like you and me and Wayne, uh, you know, duck hunters, big game hunters or whatever. And then we're finding all these problems and they were at least taking the wherewithal to turn it in appropriately, realizing, yeah, 
game wardens are few and far between right now with this pandemic and law enforcement just jack, jacked up everywhere. But hey, I'll get a license plate. I'll get a GPS coordinate. You know, maybe we can backtrack it. And at least they're going to see somebody looking at them um, to kind of put a little bit of a deterrence that it's just not a free-for-all out there. And I mean, given all the stuff you do when you do take those mental breaks and have the time around your fighting, uh, I would say you're a professional fighter and blessed to do that. And it's awesome what you're doing, but a great second, if you didn't do that, mm. you'd be a heck of a game warden, man. Think of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> we need you on the force. <laughs> hey, that's the cards. I, I, I thought about that. I was like, you know, this, this would actually be a pretty cool job. Like oh. I actually might enjoy this. I mean, uh, like I think I could, I could be a cop. I just don't think I could, uh, I don't think I could be in the city all the time. The game warden might be uh, right up my alley. Yeah. Like, yeah. Nope, no doubt. Maybe a good fit. And, and something, something too you mentioned is when you have so little time, given your fight schedule and training especially, to finally get out there and to get a mental break. You know, you said it really well when you said it's not about killing animals. It's not about having to come home with a bag limited ducks or, you know, harvest a buck. It's about all of that unwinding and mental clarity you get when you're out there just from the spirit of the, spirit of the outdoors. And, from, and, and I, I can't speak to this, but fill us in on how much does that affect your mental preparation, having those breaks and putting everything in perspective to be better in training and especially to be better when, when it's go time in the ring and all those lights are on you. It, I imagine it can do nothing but help because it sure does with us when we gear up for our, our version of a big event, having those breaks, they're just totally refreshing. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely need it. I make a point during a fight camp to spend at least one day, whether it's a hike, whether it's a hunt, whether it's uh whatever it is, whether it's just, you know, going to the lake with my dog and, and, uh, you know, enjoying time in the outdoors. I make a point every week because there is that calm absolutely need, you know, because it's really, really, really easy to get in this 24 seven mindset of, I have a fight coming up. I need to absolutely, you know, kill my body every day to, <laughs> and I know that I've realized that, you know, there is, there is, there has to be a reset. There has to be. And that's what outdoors has always been to me. It's kind of like my, uh, it's kind of like my safe place, you know, where I go and I, I just, I'm there in the moment and, and like I enjoy my time there. And like you said, not necessarily about, you know, killing anything. It's about more or less in, in enjoying the fact that, you know, there's, it's a, it's a peaceful place where I can really think or just take my mind off of, you know, the, the realities of, you know, what I'm, what I'm preparing for. And, uh, it's, it's absolutely, it's a must for me. It's an absolute must for me because, you know, if, if I can't shut my brain off at some point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to explode, you know, there's right. a, lot, a lot of pressure that goes into, into preparing for a fight. You know, I mean, like I said, you're super vulnerable. You're in a position where, you know, like I said, there's millions of viewers, you're, you're essentially putting your life on the line. You're going to fight somebody that's literally been training for the same amount of time as you have, you know, and when you get in the cage, it's, it's kind of a killer be killed, uh, uh, place. And you have a lot of time, a lot of time to think about it before it happens. So, you know, when that moment comes, like you need to be completely calm and prepared. Uh, otherwise it's just, it's, it's going to flash by, something's going to go wrong and you're not going to be prepared for it. So you have to have a steady, a steady hand and a, a calm mind when uh, when the moment comes. Yeah, yeah, 
And thanks a lot for saying that it was a proud moment when you turned in those poachers, because that was a proud moment for me for you to say that, because we don't get a lot of that. I I remember my whole career, I fought this thing. I don't want to be a rat. I don't want to be a brat. No, I want you to be a conservationist. Mm -hmm. I want you to to believe in what you're doing. I want you to preserve what we have today for tomorrow. Uh, Rats, there's no, there's no room for rats in conservation. So don't be a rat, be a hero, be, have that proud moment. And you said it best, Cody. And we've interviewed three different, and Warden's Watch, you'll have to go back to the archives, three different Nevada game wardens. And it's interesting to talk about the distance. Uh, Nick Bronson was one of my first ones, and he tells me about a case. He got there, and he, he slept. He called his wife, told him he was sleeping in the truck. I'm like, well, why'd you sleep in the truck? Well, I just drove eight hours to get there. I, I couldn't drive yeah. home then. And I was like, that totally took me back, because as a warden, I was within a couple hours of home. You know, I may not have made it there. I may have had to been overnight missions, but... Home wasn't that far away. Nick went drove eight hours to start a case, and then then he sleeps in this truck so he can be there in the morning and start investigating. And that just boy, when you talk about Nevada being wide open and the coverage and things like that, you hit the nail on the head. You're seeing that, and to have those proud yeah. moments uh, help us so much, especially when those guys out there are covering so much country, and it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. Like if I was if I was a poacher and I was doing it the wrong way in Nevada. You know, I would be thinking like, how are how are they going to catch me? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. good luck. <laughs> I'm miles away from civilization. I haven't seen a house, a light. I don't see anything. I mean, anywhere near me. Like how, like how, how would they get me? And it, the only way they would is if somebody else, you know, hunting, doing whatever on this mountain, like they they would have to be the person to to report me. You know what I mean? Yep. To let the people know, Aaron, I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I guess it's, it's kind of changed the way I look at it and um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's super important because like you said, it's, you want to be able to enjoy the outdoors. You want to be able to, to, to go there and, and, and have it be like a peaceful place. And when people are there and they're, they're mucking it up, you, you can't, you can't enjoy it the same way you could before. And, and then from like a, uh, you know, just a straight wildlife, you know, place, um, you know, pe- people that aren't doing the right things and that they're not, they're not purchasing licenses. Like, like they don't deserve to be there. You know, they don't, they don't deserve to be there. They're just, they're, they're wrecking it for people that are trying to do it right. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough fight for you guys, but uh, I'm glad you guys are there. Uh. Thanks for tuning in to the Thin Green Line podcast. Tune in next time as we continue with part two with Cody Stanman.